Cherry Developer News, episode number 80. We're 80 years old. You never get any older and you're never going to die. What is that from? Um, from Monday, uh, February 17th, 2014. That's Cocoon, by the way. Uh, I'm Ken Rimple. We'll do I'm Joel. Joel Confino. That's Joel Confino. And? I'm Eric Snyder. We are all here and we are all going to go through dev news. Uh, if you want to get to the show notes for this episode, hit chariotsolutions.com slash devnews and you'll see the one for devnews80. So let's see. Uh, we'll start off uh, with a few JavaScript uh, things. It seems like lately JavaScript is our thing. So we'll start first with a library I found over the weekend called Augment. Um, I forget where I found this. It might have been on uh, Hacker News or something like that. Um, but uh, it's uh, the world's smallest and fastest classical JavaScript inheritance pattern. And before this, um, I have a little bit of... Uh, background talking about JavaScript lately. I've, I've been doing a, kind of an intro to functional JavaScript in our training class for AngularJS. And I found, um, you know, one of the things that JavaScript is, is it's all things to all people. And uh, we were talking a little bit before we started the show. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a functional programming language now. Uh, and a lot of people have been using it for said activity. Um, it's also a classical object inheritance model. And notice I didn't say class inheritance model language. And it also stinks. That's the third mode. Um, the bad parts, right? So, um, uh, you know. This uh, you're going to get some letters. Sure I am. And, and you know, hey, for those, send uh, tweets to at TechCast or uh, send us an email at, uh, what is it, uh, TechCastFeedback at ChariotSolutions.com. Now, on to what we were talking about. Um, the part of it that stinks is all the stuff that's been jammed in there for all the browser things. There's like on the string class, there's a big function. You know what it does? Puts the big tag on it. Who the hell uses that, right? But anyway, so the point is that you could do different types of programming patterns. And one of them is the uh, object inheritance pattern. Um, JavaScript doesn't have classes. It has objects. And you can use prototypes or objects to make copies of other objects and create, quote, unquote, instances of things. So the augment library tries to give you an ability to create a class type object. Um, and by basically creating this thing and cloning it wherever you want to. So Augment does this. Augment has a function, uh, once you load it up, uh, called Augment, that takes um, some base object. It could be, you know, object of all things, which is the root object everywhere in JavaScript. Uh, and then you give it a function. And in that function, you define what would be a constructor property, uh, a way of creating an instance of it. And then you create methods for all the various uh, things you want to expose. Um, and so they go through a couple of examples of this. I think it's kind of interesting. I know that, uh, for example, Backbone uh, has like an, an object model that they want you to, to use for objects you, you place in the model. Uh, and so you, you inherit from those to do things. I know that the, uh, if I remember correctly, another thing that does this kind of work is, um, oh, what is it? It's the MongoDB driver lets you base things on certain object definitions. Uh, and this is a really simple way to do it. So for example, you create a, an object of type, let's say uh, rectangle, you would say like object.augment to create your, your rectangle uh, object creator. And then you would define a, a constructor in it, things like area. And then you would just create a, a new of a rectangle and you have it to work with. Uh, and then they let you use prototypes for inheritance. Uh, and actually behind the scenes, they actually will take a um, a call method of the other object. So if you've built a rectangle object in the constructor of your square object, in your constructor you call rectangle.call of the square object, and uh, the rectangle object and pass things in. 
neat little library if you want to do object-based work. I personally am in the functional side of things, so I'm not really interested in this, but I'm curious if anyone's ever used this before or anything like it. I mean, there have been a lot of different libraries out there that have uh, sort of found different ways to fake this out. You know? yeah. So, yeah, it gets confusing, you know. Right. I mean, I don't really fall on the side of things. I definitely fall on the side of, you know, build uh, lightweight objects to contain functions and pass them around where needed, um, you know, and, and treat functions as data just like anything else. And, you know, so, so I don't really subscribe to it. But if you were looking to build some sort of object-based model, uh, it wouldn't be bad. Um, the next item actually is, is related to this in a way, uh, is the JavaScript, uh, uh, what is it, the JSJ podcast. Let me grab this thing here. JavaScript Jabber. And they interviewed a person on that sh podcast, and I highly recommend it. It's got a lot of really good uh, JavaScript topics, uh, if you're curious. And, um, and they interviewed a guy named Bart Wood. Bart Wood works in a project um, out there. Uh, that does a lot of JavaScript for a front end. It's a big single page application. Uh, and as he put it, over 600,000 lines of JavaScript that they're dealing with, which is to me just a staggering number. The back end of the application they're working on is Grails. The domain is a dentist's office. So things like scheduling appointments and, you know, checking in patients and I guess all the way up to billing. And so it's, it's a project where they need to have second or less response time for things like pulling up a schedule. So they do a lot of caching, they do a lot of cache control, uh, and they do a lot of work in JavaScript itself. They also use things like Socket IO for push. Um, they discuss things like IndexedDB, and they asked uh, him whether it would make sense for him to basically store things in some sort of browser uh, object model. And he had some answers basically saying that the reason they pick what they did, they use Backbone as the basis of it, um, is because they did this a couple of years ago. Um, but what he was finding was a lot of very interesting things where he tried to do module-based loading and the performance just wasn't there. Um, they get into things like testing. They talk about profiling in JavaScript. Um, you know, he has um, a comment about, you know, when you do uh, JavaScript objects uh, and you don't name the functions, the Chrome uh, profiler gives you fits because it can't really tell you what it spent time in. It needs the names for those objects. And that kind of goes directly against functional programming in JavaScript. I know when we create JavaScript functions and we pass them around, we don't name them. We just reassign them to variables. So when you go into Chrome and you debug them and see what the stack is of things that are running, they don't have names. Um, that was kind of an interesting insight I saw from him. Um, and so, you know, he, he basically said that he wouldn't necessarily pick this for every case. Um, but because he had kind of a deep object model to work with, he pay, he passed back, you know, JavaScript objects with those nested objects models, um, and, and kind of had to deal with a lot of that stuff so that he could simply bring things up sub second, as opposed to fetching large structures in memory and trying to render them on the fly. So I guess the real question is, how does this work on IEA? <laughs> <laughs> does it? <laughs> I doubt it. You know what? He said that they chose Chrome and they said, because they could choose it's Chrome, the end, um, you know, because it's a product and they would have to adhere to the product requirements. So interesting. So anyway, if you want to hear how a large scale app was built and a lot of questions around same, it's the JavaScript Jabber podcast, uh, episode 96, challenges of large single page JavaScript applications with Bartwood. And again, I highly recommend that podcast. It's a really interesting one. All right. Why don't we talk about JavaScript module loaders being considered harmful? 
Well, this is the opinion of, of one person. But, of course. Uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily my opinion, although sometimes I agree. So as you, as you know, JavaScript, it doesn't come with an out-of-the-box way to modularize code except for you know, distributing code over different files. Um, you know, some environments like Node, they have a modular system. Uh, and, of course, we have the AMD asynchronous module definition API that um, allows scripts to indicate their dependencies. And you have module loaders that asynchronously download what's required. And, you know, dependencies load, dependencies load, dependencies. You know, we're all familiar with that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So this, uh, I'm trying to find the guy's name actually on here. And uh, I'm afraid that I... Iron Froggy? <laughs> Hi, Aaron so, uh, uh, he sounds trustworthy. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, here's three main points. Number one, uh, it confuses debuggers, but in actuality, it's not really the fact that you're using module loaders. It's really sort of the environment that module loaders are often in. So, usually when you're using uh, module loaders, uh, like Ricard.js or whatever, um, you're in this whole pipeline of stuff, you know, so... You know, you, you you have your grunt and your yeoman and your bower and you're minifying and uglifying and fying everything, whatever. Um, that you end up losing. Uh, you, there's all sorts of translation that goes on. So you end up losing your either you have a source map, which is a pain to deal with, or you lose that relationship. So that that was the one argument. I don't know if I necessarily buy that because source maps do work and they're not. You know, anyway. The second argument is uh, load order, and this is just, you know, it's typical of any any sort of modularization system in any language um, that does dependency resolution, right? So understanding when modules will be executed and loaded, it, it gets it could be incredibly confusing, right? So yeah, valid you know, point. Yeah, valid yeah. point. You've got Maven, you've got OSGI, you've got a lot of things where you certainly can handle can understand that could be true. Yeah, exactly. And his third point, which I sort of get definitely, is uh, he says that simply put, using a module loader instead of simple scripts is simply harder to work with. And well, sure, it is, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> by definition, right? By definition, but you know, I don't know. There, there's a problem that's definitely addressed with module loaders. Um, I guess uh, you know you have to decide if it's worth it. Really, um, I I generally say it is, but uh, the lack of consistency though is, is I guess we're all settling on, uh, you know, sort of common NPM style resolution, but um, I don't know. It's it's a crazy world out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just the immaturity of some of these things, like they're saying. Like I think probably every, you know, language or time or whatever goes through every platform or whatever you want to say goes through a time when you know these tools mature. I think module loading in general, the concept is so important that you just go, you know, you, you may fight with Maven, but at the end of the day. What's your alternative? You know, like checking everything into source control or something, you know? Well, I mean, in JavaScript, the alternative is shove everything in a set of script tags at the bottom of every page, right? Yeah, it so, doesn't sound thrilling. Yeah. No, but it works. And it is simple. Um, and yeah, that's why it kind of dovetails in what we talked about before. Um, there's a 30-minute, while you're talking about that, there's a 30-minute uh, video on YouTube from a guy named Carl Seaman, S-E-A-M-O-N, um, he works at Google and he works on, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, I'm thinking it's double click, but I could be wrong. Um, but he works on a large angular app there and he has this fantastic article about performance. It's 24 minutes long. And one of the things he says is never, never try to profile a debug minified code. It's a waste of time. Just 
profile the pure source of everything. Because, you know, as you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on, you're looking at relative differences in performance. Um, but you also want to be able to read the code. <laughs> so, you know, he had no great insight on, you know, minified code being profiled. So just a side note. But if also, if you're an Angular developer, this talk called Angular Performance on ng-conf is a fantastic little insight into things that happen and what you want to try to avoid. And he also talks about profiling there. So, so I threw that in the show notes real quick too. Um, cool. That's a good, a good article, Eric. Um, something to think about anyway. Uh, let's see. Java 8. Java 8's here, isn't it? I mean, technically, is it here? It's out, right? We've installed it. It's not beta anymore, correct? Yeah, but, you know, when do you see it in the wild? Oh, seven years from now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> I mean, it might as well not exist. Well, you know, if... Okay, so here's my advertisement for Java 8. Hey, everybody. Want to go to the, are you an enterprise developer and you would love to write closures, but you can't because your IT manager said no closures in Java? Yeah, well, go yeah. to Java 8 because it has closures. Yeah, hey, that's good. Wait, here's another ad. Hey, Java developers, hate the date API? Get another job. Oh, wait, no. Java 8's here. <laughs> <laughs> wait, Java 8's here. Let's use the new Java 8 time API. That's and everyone around me should clap because um, there is a big update to the java date and time package in fact it's a new package java.time right, that, that that's that's the fun part about it you have to be around java long enough to know that it's a don't use this package use this package because we'll never remove anything we'll deprecate exactly. it but we'll never remove it and you oh. know you, you got to look at it and say it's not bad because uh long term you can move customers into java 8 with a minimum of pain theoretically anyway um and you wouldn't break all your old java date code but you could move to the better stuff Hmm. So here's the better stuff. They've got yeah. they've got cool stuff in here. If you go to the web page I pointed to, which is Oracle's little note on it by Ben Evans and Richard Warburton, Warburton, sorry. Um, basically, uh, they go through the different objects, and so there's a local date time. You basically work in your locale. Um, date time would be uh, a, you know a combination of both. There's also a date and a time object as well. Local date and local time, if I remember correctly. Um, they talk about how you can truncate dates down to seconds and such by saying, you know, you build your local time object, then you say dot truncated to, and you pass it a chrono unit, which sounds like a robot from the future. I am chromo unit. Chrono <laughs> <laughs> um, unit dot seconds uh, attacks and gives you up to the second. Um, there is a zone uh, ID object where you can pull down a time zone. Uh, you can then uh, basically take your date time and pass it into a particular time zone and give it a zoned date time to work with. Uh, so they do kind of keep time zones out of the way unless you need them. They have the concept of a period, which is how many uh, of certain things to skip by. So you can say, I want a period of three years, two months, and one day. You do period of three comma two comma one. And then you can jump forward and backward based on those, which is kind of cool. They also have a duration concept. Uh, these are all things we had to write code for. Remember this? Yeah, they did. This looks pretty nice. I was, yeah, really I was say good. I don't remember Joda time, but I'm wondering how close this is to uh, Coda Hale's, you know, famous Joda time. That's the name. That's the name. Coda Hale, yeah, from Yammer. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, and they also will deal with things like ANSI SQL dates and things like that. So if you're querying a database that uses ANSI SQL and you've got a date time or time map or something like that, they actually have classes to re to relate to them. So it could make your programming in Java a little less painful. Um, it looks nice. I did check Tomcat's 
documentation. And Apache Tomcat still builds the latest version. Looks like you still need Java 7 to build. Which Java, means Java Tomcat, 8. Tomcat yeah, 7? This is Tomcat 8. Oh, okay. Still need to build it with version 7. So that means, yeah, Java 8 doesn't exist yet. Until you can build Tomcat with it. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> then it exists. <laughs> All right. Well, that's interesting to know. But uh, yeah. yeah, so anyway, so the, so the, the Java time api which will be replacing the java date api i'm sure it's better for the functional side of java too by the way quick plug for um if you're coming to ete which is now sold out uh, but if you're coming to ete or if you're looking for videos coming off of ete brian Getz is the keynote speaker and he is the java architect at oracle he's the, the lead architect on the whole java language and i'm sure he'll be talking about closures and things like that there so uh, keep keep an eye open if you're going to ETE, and if not, look on our video stream afterwards at chariotsolutions.com slash screencasts for that. All right, uh, let's see. Next item up for business. Um, are you tough enough, developers? And what I mean by that is, are you really able to, uh, to, to cover a lot of these bases in this blog article, 23 evergreen developer skills that will keep you employed forever. Now, I absolutely detest 10 of X, 5 of X, 20 of X things. Um, normally, this one, weird, this one weird trick to make you a better programmer. But, right. But 23, I'll pay attention to because it's not 5 or 10. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, so actually, uh, our, our marketing director passed this by me to take a look at and say, what do you think? And I almost threw it uh, against the wall because it was a, a number X of Y. But then I looked at it and said, yeah, no kidding. Now, a lot of these are very obvious. Um, for example, understand the relationship between the software development cycle and the company's business. No kidding. Um, you know, for example, like, you know, what are the SDLC skills uh, and how do they fit into the sales cycle? You know, uh, if you understand both of those and you can actually make smart choices about how you allocate your time. Um, you know, if you know that they're going to do things based on a quarter or something or based on, you know, when release comes out in the summer, then you better focus on getting that release out in the summer. Obvious stuff. Um, version control. You know, if you don't know version control, I looked at this list and I said, yeah, these are like 23 good questions to grill a, a, a candidate with, um, you know, as you're looking at things. Um, Joel, know that shipping is a feature. Number 20. Nothing is more frustrating to everyone else than having to hound the developer to ask when the software will be ready. And so, for example, you come in and you say, yeah, I know you're releasing 1.8 today. Can you have these three features? Right. Ah. <laughs> so he gives you the mantra. And we should all repeat this together. This is a new unanticipated feature that will adversely <laughs> impact the original schedule. We will need to adjust the delivery schedule, allocate more resources to the project, blah, blah, blah. And then what happens in reality? Joel, what do you think happens? Oh, yeah, of course. The Get it done. <laughs> I don't yeah. care how you get it done. Get right. it done. Or, or the famous, I mean, everybody's got a famous story, but I think I'm, I'm almost positive. We were at um, a place together, an <laughs> online bank. And, oh, uh, I know that bank. And, yeah. and the, 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 reason, the rationale why we would try to do something that was totally insane, you know, in terms of the time that we had to do it, was that marketing had already mailed out a million flyers. <laughs> here wait, wait here it comes that was my head hitting the, the microphone yeah, so, <laughs> i was at so, that project with oh guys. okay well in that case then of course we'll do 10 months of work in two months you paid a lot in postage right so this sounds like this is like a list that that you know um here's how here's how you pass the interview process and then you get there and 21 of these 23 things get completely overridden by a crazy manager but <laughs> <laughs> So if you're a yes, if you're a student in computer science, just ignore that last part. Right, right. Yeah, life is great. Get out and get a job. But you know, and you'll love it. 
but then you'll find out realistically there are some goofy things out there and they're called managers um uh yeah so you know reusable code no kidding but um the comment uh that we were kind of kicking around was you can look at all these things and then write crappy code no matter what <laughs> and so you'd, you'd have a great set of skills around your terrible code um so that's true too but uh anyway if you want some amusement or if you're you know looking for good questions for an interview that's coming up for somebody and you want to ask them things and you you're forgetting you know what the next question is maybe having this laying around next year wouldn't hurt so anyway not sure that was super valuable but hey why not let's talk about uh, twilio sms receive yeah this is a blog post on chariot site uh, and this is by, actually, it's a blog post marked by Chariot Site, but we go to Eric's site. Eric, talk about your blog post. Sure. So uh, I don't know if you guys have used Twilio or not, but... Um, what is it? Ba so basically, they call themselves a cloud communications company. Think telephony and uh, like SMS messaging in the cloud. So mm -hmm. basically, you can programmatically make and receive phone calls and send and receive uh, text messages via like really simple APIs. So you sign up, you get an account. Uh, I think there's a free level that's certain number of uh, messages and phone calls you can send and receive. And uh, essentially you get a number or a bank of phone numbers and um, you can build, uh, if you're doing uh, like a uh, voice prompt type stuff, you could uh, build it with, uh, they call it Twilio ML. It's basically XML, like really, really simple XML. Uh -huh. You can build scripts and things like that. And basically you say, uh, when somebody calls this number, um, I want you to pull the script from this URL and you give it a URL uh, or I want you to send the SMS message to this URL uh, and then it'll do whatever. So you could have a whole complicated voice prompt, you know, send and receive type thing. You could do message receive and send. You can uh, have them push it to you. You can pull for it. It's really, really simple. And uh, I did that in this article. There's a, a Django app that I'm uh, working on here at, at Chariot. Um, that basically it's sort of the Django stuff around um, receiving text message, um, doing the validation to ensure that the request is uh, not been altered in transit, that it's coming from Twilio, and then sending response back to uh, the sender. So um, that's it. I mean, it's it's called the article's called uh, Twilio SMS Receive Crazy Simple because if you look at the code, it really is it's it's ridiculously simple. How does this Look, price out? Um, I mean, it's, it's, go ahead. it's transaction based, so it's like uh, uh, I think you know. I was hoping oh, you weren't going to ask me. I that. know. Oh, here it is under the client menu. It's pricing. So uh, one it's dirt, fourth it's of dirt a cent, cheap. right? Yeah. One fourth of a cent calls to it from browsers, calls to it from mobile device. That's ridiculously cheap. It is. I, like if you're going to do SMS integration, I can't think of a better way to do it, or or voice integration. Looks really cool, and yeah. Just, Plus, you get you get all the analytics. You get a dashboard. You can see, you know, all, all that stuff. <laughs> I'm laughing at the title in here. If you go to Twilio uh, pricing, it's extras out of the box. It says, you know, throw away your telephony hardware and PBX systems. Patches are for clowns. <laughs> That's just awesome. <laughs> That's right, clowns. I'm sorry, clowns. Oh my god. I'm sorry. I don't think you're a clown. He thinks you're a clown, whoever wrote this page. <laughs> anyway, so that's at chariotsolutions.com slash blog. You can find Eric's blog post along with others as well. Uh, and you can find all sorts of cool information there. Uh, enjoyable CMS. Uh, Joel, I know you love CMS. You love the concept of a content management system, don't you? <laughs> so we were talking before and I said normally... I'm when baiting I say you. The, yeah, whenever I say the word CMS, then I throw up in my mouth. Because... <laughs> because 
I've had, you know, a lot of the CMS systems are pretty horrific. Yep. And to be fair, you know, uh, even though I've used WordPress, we use WordPress for Hadle's uh, main content page. Yep. We've had success at chat using WordPress. It's a pain, you know, is basically the nicest thing I can say about it. It has a million plugins, and the theming's great, but it's a pain. It's certainly not enjoyable. And no. so, um, you know, we found this tool called Statomic, I believe is how you say it. Uh, Justin, the lead developer on Hadle, had emailed me this uh, link where Asana is using Statomic uh, for their entire website. So they have a company that does uh, task management. It's a really nice tool. And their whole, their whole website is done with this. And they said it's a key for why they can keep it updated really fast because they have this really lightweight CMS that everybody can use. So I wanted to look at it for, uh, for us to use for a particular use case of internal usage. So really a way to store some knowledge that we had internally. You could do it in Confluence in your traditional wikis. You could do it in Google Docs. But this to me came out to be the best solution or at least one that we're going to try out. And so, so what, what is it? Well... It's a server. It's written in PHP. It's a zip file. You don't have to know anything about PHP, and it's relatively inexpensive. That's good. But thing. basically, so it took as a test. So, so why do I like it? Well, some of the things I've only been using it for a weekend. But you write the pages in Markdown. Your folders, your directories, and your files are the URLs. So if you have a about, you know, your URL, you want to be hadle.com/about, then you make a directory called about, and you put a page in there called page.md for Markdown, and that's like the index page. Or you can just, in there, you could also have another page called me.md, and then you know, then the URL is about slash me. So it's very simple, and when you build web pages this way, Markdown is a, uh, a wiki-like format, very, very simple, very popular. Um, it's enjoyable because there's just not a lot of overweight, uh, overhead or a lot of weight to it. it. Its templates are very easy to understand, and so if you, uh, they have a nice screencast where they walk through just building this web page, but... This is one of a new wave of CMS systems that are file-backed, so no database required. Thank God. And so, but this is where it becomes really powerful. So you think, okay, that's cool. There's this lightweight, file-backed, you know, little server that I can write, you know, with Markdown. Now, if you just wanted static pages, you could use Jekyll, which is a nice framework or processor or whatever, compiler, if you will, that takes Markdown pages in a format similar to this and produces static pages. And that's actually what GitHub's pages are. So I looked at that. You know, you could you could create a bunch of static pages in GitHub in a repo, and then GitHub Pages will you can get it published, but it, and then they'll basically publish it for you. Like they'll run the web server for you, but those are always public. And I wanted to use this for some internal stuff. Plus, as the Atomic uh, kind of implies, it's a mashup of static and dynamic. So you're writing these pages in markup, and they're simple. But because it is a server running them, there's you know you can do some dynamic kind of things. Um, but one of the other keys is that uh, you can now you, you've got a file-based content, so you can version that in, say, GitHub, and now you have traceability. So now you have something where, uh, let's just say for requirements. So you might have a requirement. It has a URL that's static. You know, it has a, it, it, it's in GitHub, so you can see its changes over time. You know, you can link up a requirement to some code that you wrote, you know, to the unit test. It's like you're versioning. It's like requirements as code, you know, everything. <laughs> and um, pretty cool. So uh, playing with it turned out to be pretty nice. So I, I took Statonic. I signed up for a web faction account, which is a web host, very inexpensive, $9.50 a month. Uh, put Statonic on there. I uh, created a new GitHub repo, put my content there, and then used a GitHub webhook 
to, uh, so every time you push a commit to this GitHub repo, then it calls a URL on your server and then wrote a simple PHP file, which I just, you know, cut and paste basically from Stack Overflow that will, uh, when that webhook gets invoked, when that URL gets invoked, basically runs on your server side, runs git pull. So it pulls down whatever change was, uh, was made. And because GitHub is this really cool thing where you can edit files um, right on GitHub in their web, you know, with a little web-based editor, you can actually, so you could go to GitHub, you could go to this repo, you can edit markdown files in their little editor, which is totally easy to do, and then you just click commit, and then um, because of this webhook, then it's like magically pushed over to this Datomic server that's running on WebFaction. So it's a really nice little lightweight CMS. You can also edit it, um, you know, with your regular uh, on the command line. You know, you can pull down, you can clone the repository, and you can use Sublime Text or whatever. And you can edit it locally like a developer would, but you can also just edit it uh, on a web page like maybe somebody who's not a developer would do. So it's, that's how Asana uses it, so that they can get all members of their team to be able to contribute to this. Um, and, and so, you know, pretty cool stuff. I, I like it a lot. That is very that's, cool. That is very cool. I, I'd like to throw in the ring, and it's not as cool as this, but uh, you can host static stuff in S3 too. Um, yeah. it, it doesn't have the cool, uh, you know, GitHub integration, but um, if you, just, you could just throw static content up on S3 Serve it right from there. You obviously don't have to worry about scale or anything like that. Yeah. So. No, that's a good idea, actually. That would be a way that you could still have it. Um, you could still do most of this and then just throw it out there on S3. You know, that's a, that's a great idea, actually. So, is, uh, and it also has uh, looks like an add-in API or the ability yeah, to have dynamic add-ins. It doesn't look like there's a, a community yet, but... No, it's pretty good. I mean, I, I and I I emailed the guys about some stuff, and they were they were pretty responsive. They're actually really funny. Like if you yeah. want site, like um, they just uh, they, they it's humorous, but they um, right. So in addition to static stuff, there's all they use um, basically uh, dynamic variables, and, and in their templating language, it, um, it, it's just easy to use. And I won't try to describe it too much, but you can do things like blog post lists. So that's like you know. Um, on a page, I can basically say, list the contents of another directory here, and it'll automatically do that for you. Nice. you know, that's actually really useful. And it's useful. what I'm finding is, you know, blogging CMS-type software, you know, I'm going to try to use it for requirements. You're like, what? Well, it really is like blog kind of posts. They're just lists of stuff. So it yeah. could be a list of your thoughts, but it could also be a list of, you know, requirements for a feature. It could be a list of anything else. It's a useful construct for all kinds of information. So we're looking at Statomic in, initially, or Statomic, I'm not sure which of that is, um, for, um, you know, for an internal wiki, really a replacement. And again, there's nothing wrong with Confluence. To be honest with you, this just looked more enjoyable. And for Hadel, we're looking for tools that are enjoyable to use because who wants to, like, use crappy tools? That's kind of our mantra in building Hadel. Like we want something that's enjoyable to use that makes you productive. So it's kind of our mantra when we look for tools too. And and this looks fun. And and the theming is nice too. So like regular wikis to me generally look ugly. Like they're they're kind of not great looking. Like they may be functional. But this is really because it has sort of a public is the initial idea, it was like a public site focus. But, you know, the theming looks nice and, and hey, I want my requirements or my internal stuff to look nice too. Why not? And uh, plus, you get a plus ten for the fact that it's Markdown. I love Markdown. Yeah. Also, plus one for uh, Pistachio. I don't know. If I'm, a, I'm kind of a big fan of that. If you're an Evernote user, uh, basically, and it takes uh, an Evernote notebook and turns it into uh, a blog or whatever. No. So, pistachio. 
Yeah, yeah. And you can use Markdown. So let me write that yep. down here. We have to add to um, so we, we have to add S3 hosting and Pistachio. My, my blog is is a Pistachio blog. It's freaking example. awesome. Interesting. Yeah, oh, great. Right. I just had pudding stuck in my head for the rest of the day. <laughs> hey, let's let's bring you down now. Hold on. All right, everyone, lower the lights in your room. <laughs> Turn on the red flashlight. Put it up your face and say, "Rogue DNS servers." Have you <laughs> heard of this? Exterminate. Have you heard of this? No, I so haven't. Apparently, there's a uh, a DNS change virus out there, and I'm guessing it's not in the Mac. But now that I said that, some hacker's going to do it. DNS changer, changer Trojan. Uh, and once it was set loose in the web, it corrupted computers in upwards of 100 countries, and they think at least 500,000 computers alone in America. Now, here's the fun part. The primary impact, this is from the Hacker News, uh, and it's actually relatively old, so I'm wondering how uh, relevant this is, but I found it on a tweet this morning. Um, the primary impact is that it causes them to go to fraudulent websites. Now, the fun part is um, it basically replaces your DNS with this you know, cheesy DNS uh, sites that, that do this hacking. Um, and there's a little FBI site that you can check to make sure that you're not stuck by this thing. You're basically, there's like seven or eight ranges of DNS servers. The FBI is going to kill all those servers. And so um, if you somehow have been hacked by this, on the 8th, you will not have internet access anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> Every time I do this show, I get anxiety. You should be scared. Um so anyway, so if, if you let's say you have a Windows uh, no, Windows XP machine, um, you should probably go buy another computer. But <laughs> you should immediately push it off the desk. Yeah. And go <laughs> Look at the cloud of smoke coming up from my tra transistors. But um, so what you should do is d go through the little uh, link we have on there uh, and read through the little FBI guide. Just make sure that you haven't been attacked by this thing. You'll know because your DNS server settings will be, you know, one of it looks like six different ranges of IP addresses. Or more likely, make sure that your parents haven't been attacked by this. That's thing. right, kiddo. That's right. <laughs> when the, hey, Sparky. are still running uh, Microsoft Bob or whatever that is. <laughs> Bob! There's one. Oh, man. I was the first beta user. For, no, it wasn't. Um, so anyway, so just keep that in mind. And then the last thing we have here, who, who did this last one with uh, Google Platforms? Now, I happen to love Stevie's blog rants, and now oh. he has Stevie's Google Platform rants. He's the guy... That did the post about uh, the uh, what's execution in the kingdom of nouns, which we uh, talked about a while back. Oh, that's brilliant! Oh, 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 this was this is one of like I don't know. This has got to be like one of my top ten favorite blog posts ever. <laughs> Never saw it before. Again, Justin just posted it to me. I think it was done in two thousand five. This isn't news, but th this was the best. I mean, this was you've got to read this thing, and I'll try to summarize a few things. But it, it's epic. So this is Steve Yeggy. This guy is, is the funniest human being on oh the planet. Oh my gosh. If you so what this guy did was he worked at Amazon for a while and then he went to Google. And then he wrote this really long post essentially and he kind of apologized for this part later, but it was all actually positive stuff. It well, good stuff. But basically ripping Amazon and then telling Google how Amazon though is beating them in certain areas and they should emulate Amazon while at the same time saying, you know, the things that were they were difficult about it. But, um, <laughs> and, and then he said this was like the mother of all reply all wonders. Uh -huh. Oh, no. Because he made it public accidentally. <laughs> he put it on his public Google Plus. So it was like an internal rant, which he said he normally never does anyway. Like he's, he's very respectful of his time at Amazon. He said a lot of good people are there. But, but this, the thing that comes across, aside from it being incredibly funny, and is, is that, there's some really good thinking about platforms and architecture. And aside, you know, I won't try to summarize his jokes, which are, you know, just had me in, in stitches. 
But he talks about how one thing that Amazon did so well was uh, platforms. And so this is, this is really at the time, again, I think this is 2005 when he wrote it or something. Or it, it was a while ago, and it was really when Amazon was you know, doing AWS. It was, was, it was 2005, yeah. Web services, you know, Amazon Web Services. But it's interesting for anybody who does software, because really what he says is, essentially, rather than take a product that you build and then tack on some crappy REST API and then call that like a platform, build the platform first and then make your product the first thing that runs on that platform. But because basically then you are truly eating your own dog food. And otherwise, you're just going to eternally cheat and your REST API that you expose to everybody else is going to be crappy because internally, you know, you use these rich APIs, but you don't actually tell anybody that. You don't expose them. And the Amazon was forced from top down. There was a mandate from Bezos directly saying, you know, everybody will use these services from now on and there is no other way to access internally you know, this kind of information except for the services. So the services had to be first class. And he makes a statement that if you build an application, you build any kind of product or an application that, um, you know, in his opinion or, you know, basically said it's essentially arrogant to think that you're going to know um, everything that your users are going to want to do with it. And by exposing it as a platform, you're allowing the marketplace to build the extra features that you didn't think of. And he, he says Facebook is an example of this where Facebook came out, but then it had a very rich API, and then there were things like Mafia Wars and, you know, all these games that went on to Facebook. Well, Facebook didn't build those. You know, they just made it so that other people, so they turned it into a platform. And he talks about Amazon as a platform. And in this case, he says, at this time, that Google did all kinds of things great, but they, that he felt like they did not, they did weak platforms. That, you know, that basically internally, there was a lot of, uh, you know, people could use all these very rich services, but then what they gave to the outside world was weak. And so it's not so much about, you know, whether Amazon's better than Google at platforms or, or not, but it's just when you build your own software, it's a really good reminder. He even talks about, you know, accessibility and he doesn't call, he said, when I say accessibility, you probably think like, you know, is it made for people who, you know, have low vision or something like that? He said, that's part of it. But accessibility is really, in his mind, um, anybody, can anybody access your software? And if they can't, you know, it's sort of your problem. It's not their problem. And so how do you make really accessible software where you can't think of everybody's needs? You make it a platform so that everybody, you know, so that their needs can be met through like add-ons and stuff. Really fascinating. And also fascinating his war stories about if you do this, it's not like a panacea. If you do these services, there's going to be some crazy stuff that happens and you're going to spend a lot of time on them. And, um, you know, he says things like monitoring and QA are the same thing. He said, you never think so until you try doing a big, SOA. But then when your service says, oh yeah, oh yes, I'm fine, it may well be the case that the only thing still functioning in the server is the little component that knows how to say, I'm fine, roger, roger, over and out, in a true droid voice. You know, so, so basically, he's saying that, you know, basically you have to monitor so well that you're essentially doing no, QA. So QA and monitoring are continuum when you're in this kind of service mentality. So just fascinating, lots of good insights, really funny. It looks like the uh, comment stream is nice and rich too. Yeah, and so it's been out a while. It's not new, but it's amazing how relevant it is. You know, this is now, um, you know, well, it was 2005. So seven years later, this is actually a really valuable, you know, commentary on platforms. I'm, I'm naive, but I think that probably it's still the case that if you look at Amazon versus Google in terms of consuming their platform, that Google 
is is a little less um, want to fix things that are annoyances for the developers that use them than Amazon is by constantly improving their APIs. Just a just just a, a, a complete amateur observation. Yeah. Yeah, I think the point of this he puts at the end is start with a platform, then use it for everything. Yeah. You can't just bolt it on later. That's Amazon. That really is Amazon. And I remember when I tried using Google uh, Google's apps platform, I ran into really stupid things. Like, you couldn't have more than 10 apps. Why? And and if I wanted one removed, I couldn't get it removed. Why? You know, and if I wanted another account, my account's already tied to my SMS address. And, you know, if I, I try to create another account and I have only one cell phone, I'm kind of out of luck. And there were things that would sit there as bugs for months and months and months and months and months. Um, I'm sure it's different now. And you look at now, you can send things to Google+. Plus. I think Google+, Plus is really their platform currently, it looks like. And not just Google+, Plus, but Drive, for example. Mm-hmm. That seems to be their first big platform. Um, that really seems to be exposed. But uh, Amazon, everything is their platform. Uh-oh, I've got kids trying to kill each other in here. <laughs> so this may be, it may be time to, yeah, let me, let me, let me, let me kill it now. So, so for the developer news, it is developer news number 80. That's all we have for folks. <laughs> Help me. I'm stuck here. <laughs> for Monday, February 17th, 2014, I'm Ken Ripple. I'm Joker Fighter. I'm Eric Sider. Good luck. <laughs>